the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I'm looking forward to a conversation with a legendary John Perkins. He's 91 and this, he says, is his last book. It's titled Count It All Joy, The Ridiculous Paradox of suffering. I'm looking forward to that conversation. By the way, the book is published by Moody. We'll also take a look at some of the day's headlines, beginning with Attorney General Garland, who uh, denied Thursday that his memo directing the FBI to investigate threats leveled by parents against school board members represents a financial conflict of interest, given that his son-in-law co-founded a company that sells progressive education materials of a kind that has outraged parents across the country. Well, his son-in-law is the co-founder and president of Panorama Education. It's a major product of which uh, social-emotional learning consulting is done. It offers race-focused surveys and training on systematic oppression, white supremacy, unconscious bias, and intersectionality. Well, when Republican Representative Mike Johnson suggested to Garland that his family members' ties to Panorama could could violate the Title V Code of Regulation that uh, details the rules of impartiality for executive employees. The Attorney General replied, but there is no conflict of interest. Garland dodged when Johnson asked whether he sought ethics counsel relating to the financial interests of his family before issuing the memo. He also refused to say whether he would submit to an ethics review to determine whether his memo, which critics argue will chill parent speech, might um, redound to the benefit of his son-in-law's company, given that it produces the very materials which parents have objected to. Well, when Garland repeated uh, repeated that there are no conflicts of interests here that anyone could have, Johnson reported, you don't get to make that decision. Your impartiality is being called into question. Why would you not submit to an ethics review? Well, in uh, districts nationwide, school administrators are using surveys, their reading assignments, like the ones produced by Panorama, to introduce progressive ideas about race and gender into public school classrooms. The imposition of critical race theory and gender ideology has prompted parents in dozens of states to demand transparency from their districts by protesting at local school board meetings, albeit sometimes in an unruly and disruptive manner. Well, the National School Board Association that claims to represent thousands of school board members sent a letter to the Biden administration requesting federal intervention to investigate the potential penalizing of parents who threaten school board members as domestic terrorists under the Patriot Act. Republican Congressman Steve Chabot, he asserted at the hearing that the Patriot Act was not meant to target parents. Well, Attorney General Garland clarified on Thursday rather that his memo issued in response to the NSBA letter never referenced domestic terrorism or the Patriot Act and would not apply to parents who simply complain at their local school board meetings, but only those who make violent threats. Well, Garland admitted that the NSBA letter served as the pretext for his claim in the memo that there was being a disturbing rise in threats against school personnel. But the vast majority 
of those uh, threats, if you will, were not considered uh, violent at all. Of the 24 incidents cited in the letter, uh, did not constitute threats and were instead heated verbal exchanges between parents and school board members with the occasional altercation that resulted in an attendee's expulsion from the event or arrest. Now, that's the, a matter for local authorities and not the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Well, furthermore, at least 13 state school board association chapters recently revealed that the national headquarters didn't consult them before sending the letter to the administration and would have opposed the request for federal interference in their local affairs. Well, while refuting the idea that parents will be treated like domestic terrorists, the attorney general faltered in his response when Jordan pointed out that the press release accompanying his memo directs the National Security Division, which deals with terrorism, to investigate the alleged parents' threats. Well, in the aftermath of the memo's release, parents have been outraged at what they perceive to be the Biden administration deploying intimidation tactics to suppress their free speech. A coalition of parents from Saline, Michigan and Loudoun of Virginia have sued Garland for violating their First Amendment rights. Not in a million years did we dream that we'd see the Justice Department treat parents as domestic terrorists the senator said. And while Garland said that uh, parental involvement is very important in education, many parents feel that his memo is designed to muzzle them when it comes to speaking out on behalf of their children. And interestingly, when asked whether or not there was an investigation that was conducted by the FBI confirming what the uh, uh, the National School Board Association had alleged, no, there was no investigation. The letter alone sufficed to launch this rather broad general investigation using the uh, organization that reviews terrorist activity. Well, Brian Laundrie's backpack and notebook were found in a Florida park near human remains, according to the FBI. Later this afternoon, it was confirmed that that, uh, those remains were, in fact, his. The FBI confirmed to reporters uh, in Florida today that investigators found what appeared to be human remains. That has, as I mentioned, since been confirmed, along with personal items such as a backpack and notebook belonging to Brian Laundrie. Just hours after Laundrie's parents uh, searched the uh, the area, this uh, park in Florida, these items were found in an area that up until recently had been underwater. Our evidence response team is on the scene using all available forensic resources to process the area. That's Michael McPherson, special agent in charge of the FBI. Tampa Division. It's likely the team will be on the scene for several days. He also identified Laundrie specifically as a person of interest in the murder of Gabby Petito. And as I mentioned, late this afternoon, it was confirmed that the human remains are, in fact, that of Brian Laundrie. It would appear the investigation into Gabby Petito's death has come to a close. Well, in response to the update, the Laundrie family's attorney told uh, Fox News Digital that parents Chris and Roberta Laundrie were at the reserve earlier today when human remains and some of Brian's possessions were located. Uh, Bertolino said, that's the attorney, said the findings were discovered in an area where they had initially advised law enforcement that Brian may be. He added, Chris and Roberta will wait for the forensic identification of the human remains before making any additional comments. That has now been done. Well, a former homicide detective believes the human remains found were, in fact, uh, that of uh, Brian Laundrie putting an end to the ongoing investigation. And Governor DeSantis expressed his condolences to the Petito family in a phone call with her father. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, we're going to take a break here in just a moment, but I do want to remind you that we'll be talking with John Perkins, his latest book, Count It All Joy, The Ridiculous Paradox of Suffering. The book is uh, very insightful, well-written, 
uh, and written by a man 91 years old who is suffering from cancer and has suffered significantly over the course of his 91 years. He knows of which he speaks. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Anticipating a conversation with John Perkins that's coming up in the next couple of segments. His latest book, Count It All Joy, The Ridiculous Paradox of Suffering. So looking forward to that conversation. By the way, he's the founder and president emeritus of the John and Vera May Hop, uh, Perkins Foundation and co-founder of Christian Community Development Association. Well, Ilhan Omar, who is one of the uh, squads, says Democrats who won't nix the filibuster are killing our democracy. Well, squad member Representative Ilhan Omar, Democrat from Minnesota, said any Senate Democrats standing in the way of eliminating the filibuster are killing our democracy. Well, Omar lashed out at her upper chamber counterparts who stood against progressive calls to nix the filibuster, accusing them of being the death knell of democracy. Well, the filibuster and the Democratic senators who continue to uphold it are killing our democracy, she tweeted on Wednesday. Three times, I guess, is a charm. The Minnesota Democrats' latest attack on her fellow party members came after Senate Republicans successfully filibustered the Democrats' election overhaul bill. The filibuster on Wednesday is the third time this year the Senate Republicans have blocked the Democrats' voting overhaul agenda. Progressives have been staunch in their calls for the abolition of the filibuster, although moderate Democrats, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, have opposed the removal of the Senate procedure. In other developments, Senate Republicans blocked Democrats' federal voting rights legislation. Michael Goodwin says Manchin and Cinema are the dying breed, declaring that progressives have won the Democrats' civil war. Senate Republicans slammed President Biden for the border crisis, alleging Democrats won't hold a hearing on the migrant surge. And a reporter who alleged Manchin was mulling an exit from the Democrat Party doubled down, saying it's true. Manchin has since weighed in on that prospect. Speaker Pelosi and Democrats said passing the Build Back Better plan is a moral obligation at an interfaith event. Well, Politico called out President Biden for not doing interviews, saying it reflects the bunker mentality this White House has taken. Politico is calling out the president for his lack of availability for one-on-one media interviews. On Tuesday's installment of its West Wing Playbook newsletter, Politico reporters Alec Thompson and Tina uh, Fundelis began by highlighting that Biden has participated in just 10 interviews in the first nine months of his presidency and not one since Labor Day. His tally pales in comparison to the 57 interviews Donald Trump had done and the 131 Barack Obama had done at the same point in their presidency, according to Mark Noller, a former CBS reporter and presidential watcher. Politico also noted that Biden had done at least double the interviews at this point when he was vice president under Obama. Well, the president's team is quick to note that he often takes questions from reporters after he does events. Allies of the president are even quicker to note that no one outside the Washington press corps really cares about press access, Politico wrote. But the lack of interviews reflects the bunker mentality this White House has taken with the media, particularly the extensive back and forths where reporters can follow up, push and prod. Well, Biden has been especially wary of talking to print publications. He's yet to do an interview with reporters from The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, the Associated Press or Reuters, the newsletter uh, added, political pointed out that the only three print interviews Biden had done so far were the New York Times columnist David Brooks, the Atlantic columnist Edward Isaac DeVere and the People magazine uh, uh, article as part of a joint interview with First Lady Jill Biden. 
In other developments, a new poll reveals high numbers, um, high voters worry on uh, about inflation as the Biden economy ratings are plummeting. And the Washington Post gives the claim that Biden's IRS will spy on bank records three Pinocchios saying it will monitor transactions. Well, the White House and the media tell Americans not to complain, but rather lower expectations like the Soviet Union. Well, House GOP leadership and 160 members slammed the president for doomed the doomed holiday season due to the supply chain crisis that continues. A controversial district changed election law to give McAuliffe a leg up. The race is currently a tie. Uh, the high school teacher of the year is facing termination over the vaccine mandate. And Title IX is expected to be rolled back as Biden's controversial nominee for education secretary is confirmed. Well, Walmart is digging in after a civil rights leader compared critical race theories training to blackface. Hmm. A Fed report shows wage pressures amid modest to moderate economic growth. Exxon is debating abandoning some of its biggest oil and gas projects. And the president repeated a highly criticized claim while peddling his massive socialist spending bill. It's not going to cost you anything. A top Democrat is demanding new policies in Biden's spending bill if Manchin blocks the current version. And comedian Dave Chappelle, his controversial special has spurred 100 people to protest. 100. Senator Manchin is considering leaving the Democrat Party. The report confirms a question many have had about West Virginia's senator. From the story, Senator Joe Manchin is reportedly considering leaving the party and becoming an independent if President Biden and his party colleagues don't agree to cut the massive social spending bill to at least $1.75 trillion. Mother Jones says he told associates that he has a two-step plan for exiting the party. First, he would send a letter to Senator Chuck Schumer, the top Senate Democrat, removing himself from the Democrat leader of the Senate. He is a vice chair of the Senate Democrats Policy and Communications Committee. Manchin hopes that uh, would send a signal. He would then wait and see if that move had any impact on the negotiations. After about a week, he said he would change his voter registration from Democrat to independent. Again, according to Mother Jones magazine, President Biden used his Scranton visit to push his massive spending package. That is, once he got over A stroll down memory lane that lasted about 15 minutes from the Washington Examiner. President Joe Biden didn't shy away from pitching the virtues of clean energy on his trip home to Scranton, Pennsylvania, while claiming his trillion dollar cradle to grave social welfare and climate spending package would not add to the federal deficit. Biden, who irked Pennsylvanians during the 2020 campaign with his uh, fracking positions, told a crowd at Scranton's Electric City Trolley Museum, Cole may have uh, built this town, but we've got to provide other avenues to make the same kind of living. From the GOP, Joe Biden is headed to Scranton today to try to convince Pennsylvanians to trust his plan. The people of Pennsylvania don't trust him or his Build Back Better or they called it Build Back Broke Agenda. Well, we'll see what Pennsylvania has to say for itself. Fox Business writes that when you talk about the number, we shouldn't even talk about the numbers because it's all paid for, written in the same piece of legislation. Biden told an audience as he attempted to pitch the bill, the cost of the Build Back Better bill is in terms of adding to the deficit is zero, 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 because we're going to pay for it all, end quote. Well, the GOP used a filibuster to derail Democrats' attempts at a federal takeover of elections. Uh, Senate Democrats' most forceful and perhaps last push uh, for filibuster, the major voting rights legislation this year, was blocked by a Republican filibuster 
Wednesday afternoon. The procedural vote to uh, move forward with the Freedom to Vote Act failed despite Democrats' efforts to craft a compromise bill led in part by Senator Joe Manchin, the West Virginia Democrat who hoped to get enough GOP votes to overcome the filibuster. But in the end, no Republicans voted to advance the legislation. From Town Hall, as the Senate voted on Wednesday, President Biden released a statement calling the Freedom to Vote Act an urgent matter because democracy, the very soul of America, is at stake. He added that Republican opposition to the bill is unconscionable, a strange thing to say since Republicans had already blocked Democrats' attempt to take control of elections away from states earlier. And Jason Sneed points out, former senior policy analyst uh, with the Heritage Foundation, says the bill eliminates popular voter ID requirements just like previous bills. It forces uh, states to accept a wide range of documents as ID and provides odd um, carve-outs so voters without ID can still vote. Ilhan Omar said the filibuster and the Democratic senators who continue to uphold it are killing our democracy. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, I'm looking forward to a conversation with John Perkins. His book, Count It All Joy, The Ridiculous Paradox of Suffering. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, we're trying to reach John Perkins. We have a scheduled conversation coming up. He is 91, and so we have some flexibility here. We're going to continue to try to reach him. Once again, the book that we hope to talk about today is Count It All Joy, The Ridiculous Paradox of Suffering. The civil rights and reconciliation leader released his final book on the joys and lessons of suffering, and he did so in the midst of severe suffering. He is uh, experiencing cancer. This is the third bout. And if you know anything about his life story, and I'll try to fill you in a little bit once he uh, joins us, um, he has uh, endured a significant amount of suffering and loss over the course of his lifetime. But as a follower of Jesus, he has made the decision to believe what the scriptures have to say. And in the midst of it, in fact, he has a whole section in his book on the subject of joy as it relates to suffering. So we'll get into all of that if we're able to reach him uh, here for our interview. Well, Majority Whip Dick Durbin expressed concern over overselling the Biden plan in midterm elections. Did the Democrats mismanage expectations? Well, from the story, I didn't doubt that one bit, and I think it's our fault. That's a quote from Democratic Majority Whip Dick Durbin. Uh, We oversold it and underperformed for too long. Now we get a chance to close it the right way, hopefully. Well, House uh, Republicans only need to uh, flip five seats to regain control of that chamber. The Senate is currently split 50-50 with the Democrats in the majority only because Vice President Kamala Harris can serve as the tiebreaker vote. Durbin noted that with the 2022 midterm elections on the horizon, there is a real uh, reason to be um, squeamish. That's the word he chose. He said he was uh, always worried about off-year elections in the president's party. History tells uh, tells you it's a real challenge. And just based on history and not necessarily the specifics of this particular Congress, that certainly is the case. David Davenport points out that President Joe Biden's mantra has been go big or go home. He's prompted or rather he's proposed spending trillions of dollars on covid relief, infrastructure and new social programs on the heels of the pandemic. It appeared that Biden and his fellow Democrats had a window of opportunity to dramatically expand the size and role of the federal government. They saw a chance to cut a 21st century New Deal. Whether or not they succeed remains to be seen. 
Well, if Democrats rally, uh, actually really want a smaller spending bill, they've got a lot of cutting to do. The upshot, as uh, Democrats in Congress debate how to pare back their big social spending bill to a total budget increase of less than $2 trillion over a decade, they have even further to go than it may appear. All the new spending and new tax cuts and credits in the bill add up to closer to $4.7 trillion over a decade, the result of an ambitious agenda and some optimistic thinking about the price tag. That's a developing story, and we will certainly continue to follow it. What's motivating Facebook's potential name change? Well, the answer, a tarnished brand. Mr. Zuckerberg points to the metaverse and a fast-evolving company, but Facebook's recent history points to another motive. Economist points out that the Facebook brand has become tarnished. The social network is blamed for stoking everything from teenage anorexia to insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Facebook investigators seem untroubled, but its social apps growing toxicity uh, threatened to poison its other projects. So a lot to uh, consider there. The Verge reports the coming name change with CEO Mark Zuckerberg plans to talk about at the uh, company's annual Connect conference on October 28th, but could unveil sooner. Well, Chicago and Denver sheriffs are quitting over vaccine mandates from that story. Multiple sheriffs and jurisdictions near Chicago said that they will not respond to fill the potential gap in police manpower created by Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot's COVID vaccine mandates. Kane County Sheriff Ron Hain and DuPage County Sheriff James Mendrick said that they have historically had no problem sending deputies to help the Chicago Police Department in cases where officers were in emergency distress or under duress. But that the situation Lightfoot has created doesn't fit those parameters. WGN 9 says the Cook County Sheriff's Department already works with Chicago police in some targeted high crime neighborhoods. Cook County only has 300 sworn officers, so their presence wouldn't come close to filling the void that could be created if Mayor Lightfoot follows through on her threat to suspend the thousands of Chicago officers who had still not reported their vaccination status as of Monday afternoon. Well, Chicago is not the only city to face turmoil due to the vaccine mandates. Fox 31 reports, uh, reports rather that more than two dozen of Denver's first responders have quit over the city and county's COVID-19 vaccine mandate for employees. From the Daily Wire, a 911 caller in Denver described the experience as terrifying when her emergency call was left on hold. Two things that shouldn't go together. Well, of the president's hard left agenda, some on the left have concluded maybe America just isn't on board. Well, that's the lesson that some on the left are starting to recognize. The shift in opinion polling away from the notion that they want government to do more is dramatic. Henry Olson uh, points out that while there were small shifts against bigger governments among both Republicans and Democrats in the new Gallup data, the biggest change occurred with independence. In 2020, independence favored more government by a 56 to 38 margin. Today, they oppose bigger government by a 57 to 38 margin. That's a massive 37 point swing in one year. Well, New York Magazine reports that Democrats in 2020 underperformed in every significant category. This is the New York Magazine. Well, from the razor-thin victory for Biden to the House fiasco to the poor performance in state legislatures, 2020 is uh, a fleeting victory. Ed Kilgore for New York Magazine. The research, uh, or rather the search for scapegoats from President Joe Biden to Senator Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema and their fellow centrists in the House is understandably intense, but the underlying problem is a 
2020 election that fell short of expectations and fell even shorter of what the party needed to govern effectively. Initial relief over finally ejecting Donald Trump from the White House and excitement over winning control of the Senate should have uh, not obscure the fact that Democrats emerged from the last election with a stage set for their present troubles. Well, a trans employee group at Netflix has released a list of demands ahead of yesterday's walkout over the Dave Chappelle special. Verge reports that we want the company to adopt measures in the areas of content investment, employee relations and safety and harm reduction, all of which are necessary to avoid future instances of platforming transphobia. And hate speech, employees wrote in a press release. The news comes after weeks of controversy due to Netflix executives continuing to support Dave Chappelle and his comedy special, The Closer, which many LGBTQ people and allies have criticized as transphobic. Well, CBS reports that hundreds protested on Wednesday at the company facility in Sunset Boulevard. In politics, Kirsten um, Cinema she blew up her uh, party's tax plans. Joe Manchin reportedly tells associates he's considering leaving the party. However, he denies the report, later saying, well, he thought about becoming an independent. President Biden's approval rating is in free fall. A new national poll uh, reaffirms that fact. And Maxine Waters is under fire again for paying her daughter with campaign funds. The CDC director says children should continue to wear masks in school even when vaccinated. So be prepared, mom and dad, even when vaccinated, um, the uh, the kids are going to have to continue to wear their masks. Illegal immigration uh, immigrants rather are exempt from the Department of Justice's max uh, vaccine mandate at deportation hearings. So apparently they have more freedom than do citizens and not another foot. eh? well, Biden's uh, pick for border chief backs building uh, more border wall in contradiction to what his boss has said and prevented. In a disaster in the making, 12,000 Afghans are in the U.S. now with no ID whatsoever. They hadn't been vetted before entering the country, and now, who knows? Well, a climate activist organization canceled an appearance at a D.C. statehood rally over Jewish groups' participation. The New York City Board of Health voted to declare racism a public health crisis. Most Americans say a truth is subjective. There is no absolute right or wrong. Now, think about that for a moment. What are the implications of that worldview? Now, it's not new. We know relativism has been with us for a very long time. But most Americans now have apparently embraced that view that truth is subjective. There is no absolute right or wrong. Murder, then, is not absolutely wrong. Rape is not absolutely right or wrong. Uh, it explains perhaps the event that took place just a few days ago in which on a, a train transporting a good number of people, a woman was raped in plain view. It went on for 40 minutes. No one attempted to stop the perpetrator. No one uh, called 911, but they did tape it on their phones. What does that tell you? Well, there's no absolute right or wrong. But you might get a lot of good hits um, if you were to publish such a thing. Well, the FDA has authorized Moderna and Johnson & Johnson boosters, saying people can get a shot different from their original dose. So if you had a Pfizer uh, shot to begin with, you can now you know mix and match. Former President Trump says he plans to launch a new social media network in 2022. And police have recommended charges against four over Senator Sinema's uh, bathroom harassment.
Well, fossil fuel production is set to soar over the next decade, according to the BBC. Well, on this day in history, 1892, school children across the U.S. observe Columbus Day, according to the Gregorian date, by reciting for the first time the original version of the Pledge of Allegiance written by Francis Bellamy for the Youth's Companion. 1797, the U.S. Navy frigate Constitution, also known as Old Ironsides, is christened in Boston's harbor. 1892, Thomas Edison uh, perfects a workable electric light at his uh, laboratory in Menlo Park, New Jersey. 1917, members of the 1st Division of the U.S. Army training in uh, Lunville, France, became the first Americans to see action on the front lines of World War One. 1960, Democrat John Kennedy and Republican Richard M. Nixon, they clash in their fourth and final presidential debate in New York. 1967, tens of thousands of Vietnam War protesters began two days of demonstrations in Washington, D.C. And on this day in history, 1971, President Richard Nixon nominates Lewis F. Powell and William Rehnquist to the U.S. Supreme Court. Both nominees would be confirmed. 1976, Saul Bellow wins the Nobel Prize for Literature, the first American honored since John Steinbeck in 1962. 1996, President Clinton's Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy on gays in the military survives its first Supreme Court test. 2001, Washington, D.C. postal worker Thomas Morris Jr. dies of inhalation anthrax as officials begin testing thousands of postal employees. And finally, 2018, a growing caravan of Honduran migrants continues through southern Mexico toward the United States after getting past Mexican agents who briefly blocked them at the Guatemalan border. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We had anticipated a conversation with John Perkins, his latest book, Count It All Joy, The Ridiculous Paradox of Suffering, but we're not able to reach him. As I mentioned, he's 91. He's suffering from cancer. And so his schedule is a bit uh, tenuous uh, from time to time. We hope to uh, perhaps reschedule. If not, I just encourage you to say a word of prayer for uh, John Perkins, the fact that he is doing interviews, that he's just written and released a book in the midst of his own suffering is uh, pretty telling about the kind of man he is. Um, but I regret not having the opportunity to uh, to give you the, the uh, opportunity to hear from him. But we'll see what we can do moving forward. Anyway, John Perkins, remember him in your prayers. Well, the House of Representatives voted to hold former Trump advisor Steve Bannon in criminal contempt of Congress on Thursday a week after uh, he defied a subpoena by the Select Committee on the January 6th Capitol riot. By a margin of 229 to 202, representatives voted to hold him in contempt, referring the case to the Justice Department for potential prosecution. The uh, January 6th Committee, or the 1-6th Committee, as some are now calling it, subpoenaed him for records of communications in the lead-up to the riot. Now, he claimed executive privilege although he was long out of the uh, uh, the president's orbit uh, before this event took place. Well, nine Republicans voted in favor of the measure, including seven who voted to impeach former President uh, Trump following the riot. Well, charges of criminal contempt of Congress could be different or rather difficult to pursue since at uh, at least the Republican administration, there has not been a successful prosecution under the criminal contempt statute. A former House legal counsel told Politico uh, earlier in the week, there are institutional considerations involving the Department of Justice, one of which is whether Garland wants to uh, be drawn into a continuation of the Trump administration subpoena battle. So where this will ultimately go remains to be seen. 
Well, the top uh, National Institutes of Health official admitted in a Wednesday letter to the U.S. taxpayers-funded gain-of-function research at bat coronaviruses in Wuhan and revealed the EcoHealth Alliance, uh, the um, U.S. nonprofit that funneled NIH money to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, was not transparent about the work it was doing. Now, Dr. Fauci has been asked directly on several occasions and denied that the United States was, in fact, through gain of function, involved and denied having misled the public and Congress. Well, in the letter to Representative James Comer, Lawrence Tabak of the NIH cites a limited experiment that was conducted to test if spike proteins from naturally occurring bat coronaviruses circulating in China were capable of binding to the human ACE2 receptor in a mouse model. Well, the laboratory mouse infected with the modified bat virus became sicker than those infected with the unmodified bat virus. Now, why they're modifying these things in the first place? I mean, I, I understand the concept behind it. It just seems like a fool's errand. Well, the revelation vindicates Republican Senator Rand Paul, who got into heated exchanges with the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease Director Anthony Fauci during his May and July testimonials before Congress over the gain of function question. Well, at the second hearing, Rand Paul accused Fauci of misleading Congress by denying that the U.S. had funded gain of function projects at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Well, gain of function research involves extracting viruses from animals and artificially engineering them in a laboratory to make them more transmissible or deadly to humans. If uh, in keeping with Fauci's refusal to use gain of function, Tabak avoids the uh, term, though the work he describes matches its commonplace definition precisely. Well, a previously unpublished EcoHealth grant proposal filed uh, with the NIAID obtained by The Intercept had already exposed that $599,000 of the total grant to the Wuhan Institute of Virology was for research designed to make viruses more dangerous and or infectious. Just what we need. Well, Dr. Richard Ebright, a biosafety expert and professor of chemistry and chemical biology at Rutgers University, had previously rebutted Fauci's claim that the NIH has not ever and does not now fund gain of function research in the Wuhan Institute of Virology as demonstrably false. Well, Ebright uh, told National Review that the NIH financed work at the WIV epitomizes the definition of gain of function research, which deals with enhanced potential pandemic pathogen or those uh, pathogens resulting from the enhancement of the transmissibility and uh, or um, virulence of a pathogen. Well, in addition to his uh, admission that gain-of-function research was being conducted with NIH money. Tabak also revealed that the EcoHealth failed to comply with its reporting responsibilities under that grant. EcoHealth was required to submit to a secondary review in the event of certain developments that might increase the danger associated with the research. So when Wuhan researchers successfully bound a natural bat coronavirus to a human AC2 receptor in mice, they were supposed to inform the NIH, but they didn't. EcoHealth now has five days, according to Tabak, to submit the uh, to the NIH any and all unpublished data relating to this awards project for compliance purposes. Well, the remainder of the document attempts to prove that the naturally occurrence of bat coronavirus is used in the 2014 through 2018 NIH grant experiments are decades removed from SARS-CoV-2 uh, evolutionarily, uh, only sharing 96 to 97 percent of the genome. Let's see, 100%, 97%, that's pretty, anyway. 
So there you have it. Apparently, Dr. Fauci did mislead Congress, as did um, others. The National School Board group that communicated with the White House while crafting letters likening parents to terrorists Um, Apparently, uh, before releasing the letter requesting federal intervention to investigate whether alleged threats leveled by parents against school board members qualify as domestic terrorism under the Patriot Act, email correspondence obtained by the nonprofit Parents Defending Education and first reported by the Washington Free Beacon shows that White House officials coordinated with the uh, National School Boards Association to iron out the details of the letter before it was officially published. So you have elements of the government, the White House, along with the National School Boards Association, pinning the letter together to be submitted to the White House, who receives it and uh, then responds, referring to parents as terrorists. Well, the National School Boards Association interim executive director wrote in talks over several weeks with White House staff, they requested additional information on some of the specific threats. So the letter also details many of the incidents that have been occurring. Well, in response to the letter, Attorney General Merrick Garland issued a a memo directing the Justice Department to collaborate with the FBI and federal, state and local law enforcement to probe and potentially prosecute parents for making violent threats against school board members. Not only did the NSBA not consult or inform at least 19 state school board association chapters before sending the letter that was jointly written with the Biden administration, but the group has also failed to consult its own board of directors before sending it. In another email exchange, a board member says the board of directors should have been consulted before a letter like this was sent out publicly and no less to the president of the United States and the national press. Like many of state uh, of the state chapters, which reveal the PDE uh, that would have uh, opposed a plea for the federal involvement and deferred instead to state and local law enforcement to manage school district affairs. The board member said the National School Board Association statement was not reasonable and used extreme language. This is from actual school boards uh, that are affiliated with it. Uh, They went on to say, I also agree that the letter took a stance that went beyond what many of us would consider to be reasonable and used terms that were extreme. Asked for action by the federal government that many of us would not request, the member said. Local control has been a stalwart of our principles, and we do not want to abandon that concept now. Well, despite the positive intentions behind the letter, it's exacerbated conflict and further deteriorated relationships between parents and the administrators they elected to provide a quality education for their children, the member went on to suggest. We're going to take a break here in just a moment with news traffic. And when we return, we'll uh, continue to take a look at the news again. I apologize. John Perkins was not available uh, for our interview in this hour. We're hoping to um, maybe reschedule if that's possible. But I mentioned he's 91. He's also suffering from cancer. And I would encourage you to keep him in your prayers. His book is titled Count It All Joy, The Ridiculous Paradox of Suffering. I would highly recommend it um, for your reading. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. I should mention Dave King is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. We're continuing to look at some of the top news stories of the last, uh, well, 24, 48 hours, including this one. Senator Marco Rubio has delayed a committee vote on President Joe Biden's nominee to lead the global health development at the U.S. Agency for International Development. 
Why? Well, he cited the nominee's past comments on gruesome partial birth abortion techniques. Uh, His defense of infanticide is disqualifying, the Florida Republican said in a statement. He went on to say that infanticide should be condemned, not celebrated, but Gwandi's radical anti-life views are becoming mainstream in today's Democratic Party, end quote. President Biden should withdraw Gwandi's uh, nomination and replace him with someone who is committed to upholding the agency's mission of saving lives. Well, Senator Rubio, a senior Republican on the Senate Committee for Foreign Affairs, went on to say, well, partial birth abortions have been banned in the United States since the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act that passed in Congress back in 2003. The act was signed by former President George W. Bush and the Supreme Court upheld uh, the law as constitutional in 2007. Well, according to the legislation, a partial birth abortion is one in which an abortion doctor delivers a living baby with, until the baby's head is outside the mother's body, then punctures the back of the baby's head, removing the baby's brains. Now, I apologize for not warning you before that description um, and uh, for being as matter of fact about it as I seem to be. It is horrifying. And to consider that uh, the nominee believes this is perfectly acceptable is equally horrifying. Well, maybe not equally, but it is horrifying. Gwandi, who was nominated to be assistant administrator of the Bureau for Global Health at the U.S. Agency for International Development, formally suggested that critics should not vilify partial birth abortion over other abortion procedures merely because it's gruesome. Of course, they're all gruesome. That's what he wrote in 1998 in Slate in an op-ed. Grossness is not a good objection. Well, it sounds pretty good to me. Beheading is gross. It shouldn't be done. Just a thought. Lots of operations are gross. Leg amputation, burn surgery, removal of facial tumors, etc. Of course, it doesn't end the life of the person. And the purpose of the gruesome procedure is to preserve one's life, uh, to preserve one's capacity. So to make the comparison is ridiculous. But he goes on to say, but that does not make them wrong. His equivalence here is certainly off. Well, the Biden nominee, who is a professor at Harvard School and an endocrine surgeon, acknowledged that his uh, rather in his op ed that partial birth abortions are disturbing. Well, at least he went that far since the baby being aborted is big now, like a fully formed child. Well, it's awfully big of him to recognize the child is big. And if that's what conveys value and worth is the bigness of an individual. Then our whole culture will have to be uh, shifted because we tend to look down on bigness in this culture. But he he goes on to describe the procedure in uh, gruesome detail, comparing partial birth abortions to dilation and evacuation procedures, an abortion in which the uh, doctor vacuums the baby out of the mother's womb. He wrote partial birth abortion is, if anything, less grotesque. Uh, the fetus is delivered feet first to get the large head out. The doctor cuts open. Well, I'm not going to go into greater detail. You get the idea. Gawanda, who is also the author of several books and a staff writer for The New Yorker, uh, suggested that if partial birth abortions are too gruesome to allow, as advocates were insisting at the time, then dilation and evacuation abortions may also be too gruesome to be permitted. Yeah, you think? Now, he thinks he's being clever, but uh, yes, I'm all for that. Let's let's end those as well. You can you take what you can get. And at the time, that was uh, what we could get. And that's the inevitable next target for pro-life advocates. The Biden nominee went on to write. Well, at least he gets that right. He also discussed arguments over when abortion should be banned, writing that an unborn baby does become a distinctly different being somewhere between 22 and 25 weeks. And adding that to what matters when determining life is whether someone's brain is functioning or not. 
Likewise, in the case of a fetus, he goes on to say, it seems that what we want to know is whether it is a brain with a spark of consciousness. For example, we don't uh, want um, anencephalic babies tragically born with only a brain stem and not the rest of the brain as living humans. We don't want that, he says, speaking for himself. Even for viable anencephalics, uh, there's no purpose to providing treatment. We let them die. I won't go into how parents often embrace these children until uh, natural death occurs, but that's for another day. Whether the fetus is in the womb or out, big or small, does not matter, which contradicts what he said earlier. Uh, He said, but the size and appearance of the late term fetus makes us imagine that it has become a sensate, aware creature and makes many supporters of first trimester abortion uncomfortable with later term ones. Neither the White House nor Gawande uh, immediately responded to to requests for clarification in the 21st century. Uh, I'm pleased to see Senator Rubio raise these concerns about the nomination of Atul Gawande uh, to serve in this important role uh, with USAID. Grace Melton, who's a senior associate for social issues at the United Nations for the Heritage Foundation's DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society, Uh, said in her statement, it is a tragedy whenever American development aid is entangled with abortion. When we send our tax dollars abroad to uh, promote global health, we should do so in a manner that protects the lives and health of the recipients, including the unborn. So that's been blocked. I don't know for how long or what happens next, but there you have it. In other more local news, Oregon could be on track to reach herd immunity against the Delta variant of the novel coronavirus by the end of the year. Now, I thought that was an outmoded concept, herd immunity. It was discredited some time back, but now we're reading that Oregon could be on track to reach herd immunity against the Delta variant of the novel novel, uh, coronavirus by the end of the year, according to a data scientist at the Oregon Health and Science University. Dr. Peter Graven has been tracking the virus since the start of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, and his latest modeling show that Oregon could hit the herd immunity threshold as soon as the day after Christmas. Well, herd immunity refers to the point at which a virus can no longer easily circulate because a large percentage of the population has been vaccinated or achieved natural immunity through a prior infection. Well, the minimum required percentage varies depending on the virus. The Delta variant is more transmissible than the original version of the novel coronavirus and has an estimated threshold of 85 percent, according to Dr. Graven. Well, the Delta variant reached the United States earlier this year, became the dominant strain on the virus in uh, rather of the virus in circulation, contributing to a renewed surge in cases and a record high number of COVID patients in the state of Oregon hospital beds in early September. Well, COVID cases in Oregon have trended downward since then, but the state's hospital beds remain relatively full, matching the height of the previous case waves, Uh, says Graven. Our most recent statewide hospital number was 585 that I reported. That's still the peak of the fall and winter surge of last year. Statewide, 24% of intensive care unit beds were occupied by COVID patients as of October 12th, according to OHSU. Well, case should uh, continue to fall in the um, coming weeks, and projections show the number of hospitalized COVID-19 patients statewide should drop to about 241 by the end of the year, he said, easing the strain on hospitals. Well, who's skipping the vaccine? The answer may surprise you. There's new data that indicates highly educated Americans are among the most hesitant. Well, big media has been in um, overdrive uh, pushing COVID-19 vaccinations, at least since the president was ensconced in the White House. Remember that when um, uh, 
Donald Trump was still president, the vaccines were suspect simply because Donald Trump played a major role in their development and rollout. And let me clarify, he wasn't in a lab coat, you know, working with beakers. He he commissioned the work to be done. So it was ridiculous. But nonetheless, before the election, Biden and running mate uh, Kamala Harris were vaccine hesitant, both cast doubt on the COVID-19 vaccine still in clinical trials last fall. Biden said, I trust vaccines. I trust scientists, but I don't trust Donald Trump. And again, he wasn't wearing a lab coat with a beaker. He just commissioned the work to be done. Well, did he believe Trump was cooking up the vaccines in the White House basement? The sole decision maker regarding approval, ignoring the pharmaceutical companies creating the vaccines overseen and ultimately approved by the FDA and not the president? I don't know what he thought, but that was at least where the skepticism began. The now vice president expressed similar suspicions, saying, I would not trust Donald Trump and it would have have to be a credible source of information that talks about the efficacy and the reliability of whatever he's talking about. I will not take his word for it. Well, no one expected the president to um, to lead that charge in terms of the scientific efficacy of the drug. The Food and Drug Administration and the pharmaceutical companies were uh, leading the charge. Once it became clear uh, there would be a new occupant in the Oval Office, the vaccine narrative flipped and the administration embraced the new vaccines as if Biden and Harris conceived of and developed them themselves, wearing lab coats and holding beakers rather than having the vaccines and a robust rollout dropped on their laps when they strolled into the White House. Well, the U.S. is about 51 percent fully vaccinated. I think that number is higher now. And while that may uh, may not seem like success, if you break it down, the numbers are more favorable. Sixty two percent of adults, 81 percent of the elderly are fully vaccinated. Another segment of the population has natural immunity based on having had COVID-19 and given natural infection as a second pathway toward herd immunity. American has uh, done well. Well, who isn't yet vaccinated in America and why? Well, there is vaccine hesitancy, which according to Wikipedia is a delay in acceptance or refusal of vaccines despite the availability of vaccine services. Well, a vaccine hesitant person may be okay with uh, routine childhood immunizations or a flu shot, but not the COVID-19 or shingles vaccine. An anti-vaxxer would say no. Uh, to all the above or leaving aside the rationale or flaws behind these views. Uh, who are the vaccine hesitant and why? Well, last March, Forbes reported that 49 percent of Republican men and 47 percent of Trump supporters will refuse any vaccine, uh, setting the narrative for who is to blame now for the Delta variant surge. Well, those numbers weren't uh, telling the whole story. Unbeknownst uh, then, but known now, is that the vaccines don't prevent infection or transmission as much as expected. According to CDC Director Rochelle Walensky, vaccinated people infected with Delta can transmit the virus. Well, the vaccines do, however, reduce the risk of severe illness and death, allowing many to suffer milder infections, gaining natural immunity and pushing the uh, the country closer to herd immunity, where COVID-19 becomes a seasonal nuisance like influenza. What's the media um, not saying about the vaccine hesitant? An online survey of 5 million Americans conducted between January and May of this year by researchers at Carnegie Mellon University and the University of Pittsburgh suggested that highly educated Americans are among the vaccinated vaccine hesitant. The researchers found a U-shaped curve with the greatest hesitancy among the least and most educated. The most common concern for those who are hesitant to take the vaccine is potential side effects with a lack of trust in government. Um, 
close behind in second. So much for the media narrative that only the missing teeth, knuckle-dragging Neanderthal Trump supporters are against the vaccine. Well, a decision to be vaccinated involves looking at evidence, scientific studies, and their validity, weighing risks and benefits, then arriving at a decision. Public trust in government is quite low at 24%, according to Pew Research. If the government says to take a vaccine, well, folks are less likely to do just that. Who's skipping the vaccine? The highly educated, uh, highly educated, the skeptical uh, in uh, terms of the government and others. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, state health officials here in the state of Oregon say they improperly reported Oregon's COVID-19 death toll because of a computing error and will be adding about 550 individuals soon to the list of those who died of the disease, mostly between May and August of this year, increasing the fatality count by 13 percent. Well, the Oregon Health Authority said reported COVID-19 related deaths will be higher than usual for about a month as it resolves the backlog and adds individuals who died of COVID-19 to its data dashboards and daily media releases. Well, the agency said the additional deaths will impact the state's national standing in terms of death rates from the disease, pushing it from sixth lowest rate among states to perhaps seventh or eighth. To date, the state has reported 4,235 deaths from COVID-19, excluding the cases that will be added. September was the state's deadliest month with at least 633 deaths, and August was the fourth highest with at least 419 fatalities. Conversely, June and July reported some of the lowest death counts of the entire pandemic at 94 and 81 fatalities, respectively. Well, the agency said its reporting of coronavirus deaths is a manual process that involves reconciling death and case uh, records. It's been working to um, automate the process which created the backlog reported today. We're taking steps to ensure that our reporting is comprehensive and transparent. That's from Patrick Allen, who is the director in a statement. We extend our condolences to everyone who has suffered a loss to COVID-19, and we deeply regret the pain this disclosure may cause. Meanwhile, the CDC says five-year-olds will still need to wear masks even after the, af- the vaccine is approved for kids. Now, students as young as five uh, may still need to wear masks in school after the COVID-19 vaccine is approved for children ages 5 to 11. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director Rochelle Walensky said in a White House briefing on Wednesday, Walensky didn't discuss if or when children would not be required to wear masks in school. After we have authorization from the Food and Drug Administration and recommendations from the CDC, we will be working to scale up pediatric vaccination. That said, it will take some time as we head into these winter months. We know we cannot be complacent, Walensky stated. Well, the administration released a plan on Wednesday to vaccinate 28 million children ages 5 to 11 with vaccine doses ready to distribute upon the necessary approval. We also know that from previous data that schools that have uh, had masks in place were three and a half times less likely to have school outbreaks uh, requiring school closure, Walensky went on to say. So right now we're going to continue to recommend masks in all schools for all people in those schools. And we will look forward to scaling out pediatric vaccination uh, during this period of time. Now, it's not clear if there will be a mandate, but the rollout and the preparation for all children 5 to 11 being vaccinated 
is on the march. Florida Surgeon General Dr. Joseph Ledapo said Wednesday that the data does not support any clinical benefit to forcing mask mandates upon children in a school setting. 135 of the 28 million Americans, 5 to 11, have died of COVID-19 during the past 19 months. So those are the uh, battle lines at this point. We'll see what uh, what happens once the approval of these vaccines for 5 to 11-year-olds uh, has been made and whether or not there's strong resistance among parents and a push toward a mandate. Well, Oregon has granted religious exemptions from Governor Kate Brown's COVID-19 vaccine mandates uh, to at least 11 percent of state executive branch workers, nearly double the rate of faith-based exemptions approved for state workers in Washington. And Washington drew national headlines uh, earlier this week when it fired Washington State University football coach Nick Rolovich and several assistant coaches because they refused to get vaccinated. Rolovich unsuccessfully sought to keep his job by requesting a religious exemption. Data released by Washington on Tuesday shows that state has signed off on vaccine religious exemptions for a far smaller percentage of the state workforce than Oregon. Monday was the deadline for state employees in Washington and many in Oregon to provide proof of vaccination, obtain a religious or medical exemption or prepare to be fired. In Oregon, public employee unions worked out deals with the state to extend the time some employees have to complete that process. Data provided by Governor Jay Inslee's office, the governor of Washington, shows 6.8 percent of Washington employees had received religious exemptions as of Tuesday. The most recent information provided by Oregon's administrative agency is from Monday uh, when 11 percent or 4,281 state workers had been granted religious exemptions. Since then, the state approved an additional 463 vaccine exemptions, but it has not yet shared the breakdown of how many are based on religious beliefs versus medical reasons. In Washington, many of the state employees who received religious exemptions will nonetheless lose their jobs because their employer found workplace accommodations not to be feasible. In general, Washington employers, employees rather, whose jobs involve directly working with the public or colleagues can only keep their jobs if they can be reassigned to telework, the national or rather Northwest News Network reported. So again, the livelihood of some is on the line. Oregon, however, will ensure that all workers who get an exemption can keep their jobs. Washington has approved both religious exemptions and job accommodations for just 2.4% of state workers, a total of 1,514 employees. That number will almost certainly rise slightly since 610 employees uh, with approved religious exemptions still uh, had pending accommodation requests as of earlier this week. Oregon allowed individual agencies rather than its centralized human resource department to decide which employees had a sincerely held religious belief against vaccination necessary to qualify for an exemption. Among agencies with at least 100 employees, the rate of religious exemptions granted ranged from 19 percent at the Oregon Department of Corrections and 14 percent for Oregon State Police to 2 percent at the Higher Education Coordinating Commission and none at the Oregon Public Utility Commission. Oregon will not dismiss employees who received religious exemptions but have jobs that involve significant in-person work. The legislative coordinator for the Department of Administrative Services wrote in an email that state agencies, human resources departments are going through accommodation processes with individual employees and coming up with safety measures to help prevent the spread of COVID-19 in the workplace. Most jobs held by corrections and state police officials involve regular contact with inmates, members of the public or co-workers, 
head of a vaccine mandate. Public employers and others relied on masking, social distancing and remote work when possible to slow the spread of COVID-19. Well, the election to uh, choose Oregon's next governor is still more than a year away, but the crowd of candidates is already approaching a dozen Democrats, Republicans and independents. So far, nine Republicans and six Democrats have filed to run in next May's primary election. More candidates are expected to file in the future. Well, Pacific University political science professor Jim Moore um, was asked about the partisan history of the state's highest office. The last Republican governor in Oregon was Vic Atia. He left office in 1987. In case you've forgotten, this is 2021. That's a very long time. It's not probable at this point that a Republican will win, but they could win, said the professor. Remember, there are things that are going to be going on in this election that have nothing to do with Oregon and that could drive turnout. The biggest of them is the role of Donald Trump, the ex-president. How big an issue is he in this race? You can see, for instance, he being a big issue in drawing Republicans and drawing in people that support him. You can also see him being a big issue in driving people to come vote against people who support him. So that's a big thing that's not under the control of anything that goes on here in Oregon, end quote. Well, he expects the primary field to grow more crowded in the near future, with additional candidates from both parties jumping into the race. Uh, Some of the candidates uh, that we now know uh, among the Democrats, House Speaker Tina Kotek, uh, State Ter- Treasurer Tobias Reed and Patrick Starnes. Among the Republicans, Dr. Bud Pierce, Sandy Mayor uh, Stan Pulliam and Jessica Gomez. One non-affiliated State Senator Betsy Johnson. And again, they expect that those numbers will continue to rise. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow, we're planning on taking a look at the news, but we'll also look at the lighter side of the news and share the Christian outlook. So I hope you'll join us for that. That's coming up tomorrow on the program. Well, it was reported last week that a Bible app and a Quran app uh, had been removed from Apple's app store in China because of pressure from the Chinese government. Well, that's hardly surprising from the... uh, Chinese Communist Party, but now an American company has been enlisted to do Beijing's dirty work. Well, the watchdog group uh, Apple Censorship was the first to report that the app's Olive Trees Bible app and uh, Quran Majid had been taken down. When Apple removed the uh, app, the makers were told it contained content that is illegal in China. China's restrictions on religious texts have affected those of all faiths, sometimes brutally so. And Xinjiang, Uyghur Muslims who were caught with religious content on their phones can be detained without trial in an internment camp. And we've heard a lot about what those re-education camps are like. Leaders at Olive Tree removed its Bible app themselves. Olive Tree Bible software was in. Uh, informed during the App Store review process that we are required to provide a permit demonstrating our authorization to distribute an app with book or magazine content in mainland China. A spokesman told the BBC, well, since we didn't have the permit and needed to get our app updated, uh, update approved and um, out to customers, removed our Bible app from China's App Store. It hopes that it eventually can get the app back on the App Store. Well, good luck with that. 
That seems unlikely, as the Chinese government has pretty much ramped up restrictions limiting Chinese citizens' access to the Bible overall. Physical copies of the Bible can no longer be purchased online in China. Christian businessmen have been persecuted for selling audio Bibles online. And the Chinese Communist Party has announced that it is developing its own version of the Bible that will embrace socialist values its own version of the Bible. While the Chinese government crackdown on citizens' access to religious texts is continuing, Apple's removal of the Quran op, app rather, and Olive Tree's self-censorship, China's government pressure is now forcing American companies to do the censoring for Beijing. Well, this comes at a time when free expression online is under attack around the world. Freedom House's Freedom on the Net 2021 report found that more governments arrested users for nonviolent political, social or religious speech than ever before. And for the seventh year in a row, China has the single worst conditions for Internet freedom instead of enabling this problem. American corporations such as Apple should be fostering freedom of expression abroad, including religious expression. But the bottom line doesn't allow that. Although American corporations regularly advocate uh, progressive politics at home, they often neglect to take strong stances against authoritarian regimes abroad. Again, the bottom line. Last November, Apple went so far as to lobby to weaken the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. It was a bill that would block products made using the forced labor of Uyghur Muslims from entering the United States. Apple seems to be putting profits before human rights, which I guess isn't that surprising, whether in removing religious apps at the... the uh, Chinese government's request or in performing uh, rather profiting from uh, modern day slavery in China. Well, last month, Apple and Google deleted a Russian political opposition app from their app store after Russian censors demanded it. Those acts of cowardice are troubling. Do American corporations really want to take on the role of censors for freedom hating regimes? Well, the answer, at least today, is yeah. We make a lot of money in Russia and in China. Apple and other American companies need to grow a spine, stand up to the authoritarian regime's intent on exerting control at the expense of basic freedoms, such as the freedom of expression and religious freedom. They have to do a better job at pushing back against the Chinese government and other bad actors. Otherwise, they make themselves complicit in facilitating human rights abuses against people around the world. American companies can and should do better, and American customers should demand that they do. So we do have at least some, perhaps, influence in that area. Well, Beijing has made no secret of its intentions regarding Taiwan. China has long expressed the view that the island nation is not a separate state, but rather a rogue region belonging to the mainland that will eventually be brought under the communist government's control. Well, this stance was recently brought to bear with China's flying 150 fighter jets and bombers into Taiwan's airspace. This latest provocation, as many in the West wondering... Not if, uh, but when the Chinese government will initiate a full-scale strike against Taiwan. And given events in Afghanistan, they may be a bit more emboldened. But it's not just the U.S. and Europe that are seeing the writing on the wall. Several other nations in China's immediate region see it as well. Japan's new prime minister has proposed that the island nation double its defense spending from the current 1% of GDP to 2%. And the primary reason has everything to do with China. As Japan's Liberal Democratic Party policy uh, chief 
explained, we are demonstrating our resolve to defend the Japanese people's lives, property, territory, territorial waters, territorial airspace, sovereignty and national honor, end quote. Well, Australia also sees the Chinese threat and is acting accordingly, demonstrated by its recent new joint security partnership between the U.S. and U.K., dubbed AUKUS or A-U-K-U-S. This partnership comes with new nuclear power submarines, something Australia has never had before. France has also been a long time and significant regional presence in the West Pacific and importantly, has a close relationship with Taiwan. Yet by far, the one nation with the ability to successfully counter a Chinese invasion in Taiwan remains the U.S., the question, however, is one of time. Initially, China would likely strike rapidly. Perhaps that would begin with a massive cyber attack, potentially throwing the island nation into darkness, all while the Chinese military quickly worked to take control of airfields as Taiwan is well equipped to defend an invasion by sea. Taiwan likely would not be able to hold out against a full-scale attack by China for long without U.S. help. But how quickly would the U.S. be able to mobilize to respond? The even bigger question is this. Would Joe Biden actually uh, elect to respond with military force? His Afghanistan debacle certainly gives no assurance that he would make such a decision, which may be um, way, uh, why it appears that China is ramping up its military activities. But allowing Taiwan to fall to China also holds a massive impact to the U.S. as Taiwan is one of the world's leaders in the manufacture of semiconductors which are used in numerous products and upon which the U.S. relies heavily. Well, by breaking this supply chain, Beijing would put quite a squeeze on the U.S. economy. Even so, that's just one of the myriad problems posed by the Chinese aggression in the face of the weakness of the American president at this moment. It's an interesting prospect to consider, and uh, only God knows what will happen next and what the Chinese are actually uh, planning. Well, a question has been asked. America is divided, but has it always been this way? Mark Meckler, uh, writing for Newsmax, says the United States was never particularly united, yet through it all, we've only grown stronger. So is unification, unity of some sort, tolerance perhaps, um, achievable? And is it necessary in order for the nation to grow stronger? He writes that it's fashionable to lament the deep political and ideological divisions in our country. Democrats blame President Donald Trump. Republicans blame the radical left and the current president. Pundits point to the breakdown of the family, social institutions and decency. Every faction has a different scapegoat, but they all share an assumption. Our country used to be united, but now we're divided and on the verge of civil war. And I, I think that the statement probably would be better. We used to be civil. Maybe not always united, but we used to be civil. Anyway, he goes on to write, A review of American history tells a different story. The United States has never been particularly united from the colonial period through the Revolution and Civil War, and into the 20th century it has been fractured and divided. Different regions and states have uh, antagonized one another, jockeyed for power and position, and castigated other Americans for a variety of real and imagined faults. Through it all, the U.S. has only grown stronger. The Federalist system our founders instituted was designed to accommodate division. Our ability to function, indeed to thrive within that division, is the key to our country's success. Division and disagreement metastasize into life-threatening cancer only when an all-powerful centralized government attempts to impose one-size-fits-all solutions. 
Hmm, sounds familiar. Our country is too big and too uh, diverse, rather, to unite around Washington, D.C. If we want to continue our dominance on the world stage, we must stop trying to mold all America into a unity. Instead, we should work to reduce federal power, re-empower state governments, and get back to the federalist system the founders imagined. Our nation's history is one of difference and division. Well, perhaps there's some truth to that analysis. And I think um, division is tolerable when civility is considered a priority and a virtue. And I think part of the concern is that's no longer the case. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news, and we'll share this week's Christian Outlook. That's coming up tomorrow, right here on The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Christian Post uh, reports a uh, survey indicating that nearly 70% of born-again Christians, self-identified, disagree with the biblical position that Jesus is the only way to God, according to a new survey from Probe Ministries, a nonprofit that seeks to help the church in renewing the minds of believers with a Christian worldview. Now, it's interesting to me that self-identified, born-again Christians believe we have the um, the option and the freedom to pick and choose what the Bible teaches and what we embrace as truth. Well, the survey, which looked at religious beliefs and attitudes toward cultural behaviors, polled 3,106 Americans, 18 to 25, relatively small sampling group, uh, from all religious groups, um, including 717 respondents who identified as born-again Christians. So this is a larger survey than just uh, Christ followers. Born-again responders were identified based on their affirmative response to the question, have you ever made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in your life today? They were also identified by their belief about what happens after they die. Born-again believers agree that I will go to heaven because I confess my sins and accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. Well, that's um, that's pretty accurate. Well, despite the claim uh, by the self-identified born-again Christians in this study, and again, we're talking about 717 of them, among all respondents, 18 to 39, who profess an affiliation with some religion, fewer than one out of five of them strongly disagree with the statement that Muhammad, Buddha, and Jesus all taught valid ways to God. Still, some 60% of this cohort uh, said that they shared their faith with someone else at least annually with the intent of converting converting them, 60%. Well, if you uh, think that there are multiple ways to heaven, why would you want to go out of your way to convert someone to your religion? Of course, you could be sharing with an unaffiliated person who needs to choose a valid religion. Stephen Cable, senior vice president of Probe Ministries, in his analysis of the data noted. Well, the survey also found that among the top reasons given by born-again uh, believers... Uh, born again Christians for not telling others about their faith is the acceptance of pluralism. When asked why they don't share their beliefs with others, born again respondents chose they can get to heaven through their different religious beliefs. We shouldn't impose our ideas on others. And the Bible tells us not to judge others as their top three responses, respectively. Now, this is really interesting and tells you something about what's being taught from the pulpit, at least to those who are part of this survey. At a glance, this may seem surprising, but in a culture where pluralism is a dominant part of the all religious groups, uh, it begins to make sense, and the pluralistic reasons were dominant, attracting around 
two-thirds of the population across all religious groupings. Uh, Cable argued that pastors and churches need to make the exclusivity of Jesus as the only way to heaven a stronger focus in teaching their congregations in order to push back against the tide of pluralism. I mean, it's a great idea. It sounds wonderful. It's very comforting to think that that may be uh, the case. But if the scriptures teach something that is dramatically different, if the scriptures are true, then you are risking um, those that you care about, those with whom you share life or share your faith, uh, missing the mark. Well, on the most common reasons, which indicate the belief that other people don't really need to know about salvation through faith in Jesus, we need to make the exclusive role of Jesus Christ in any hope of salvation a recurring and prominent theme in our teaching. He went on to say, this is not a topic to tiptoe gingerly around. Rather, we need to boldly proclaim there is salvation in no other name under heaven other than the name of Jesus Christ. That's what the scriptures say. God would not have planned from uh, before the beginning of time to sacrifice himself on the cross for our salvation if there were any other means to reconcile sinful men and women to himself. Well, he went on to add, God will not force reconciliation on us. We can choose to reject his grace. But as Paul tells us in Romans, how are they to believe in one they have not heard of? If we think we can slough off our responsibility to tell others, we do not understand the grace of God and our role as citizens of heaven living on this earth. Well, in 2008, a Pew Research poll, uh, I should say study, found that more than half of all American Christians believe that at least some non-Christian faiths can lead to salvation. Nearly a decade later, a Pew survey found that even among the most traditional Christian groups, significant minorities have been rejecting God as described in the Bible. And while 80% of all Americans surveyed in a 2018 study said they believe in God, only 56% said that God they believe in is the one as described in the Bible. So we sort of uh, create our own, an amalgam of things that we prefer to think about the Lord of the universe. Well, the strongest supporters of God, as described in the Bible, were Christians who self-identified as members of historically black Protestant churches at 92 percent, followed closely by evangelicals at 91 percent. Significant minorities of Christians who identified as Catholics at 28 percent and mainline Protestants at 26 percent also indicated that they believe in a higher power or spiritual force, which is not God as described in the Bible. Well, this confusion among Christians and what they believe was also recently reflected in the American Worldview Inventory that was published last month by the Cultural Research Center of Arizona Christian University. Of an estimated 178, or rather 176 million American adults who identify as Christian, just 6% or 15 million of them, we're talking about U.S. um, believers, uh, were actually found to hold a biblical worldview. The study showed in general that while a majority of Americans self-identified as Christians, including many who identify as evangelical, believe that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and is the creator of the universe, more than half reject a number of biblical teachings and principles, including the existence of the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure what Jesus sent, if not the Holy Spirit he specifically made reference to. Well, strong majorities were also found Um, To errantly believe that all religious uh, faiths are of equal value, people are basically good, and that people can use acts of goodness to earn their way to heaven. The study further showed that majorities don't believe in moral absolutes, consider feelings, experience, or the input of friends and family as their most trusted sources of moral guidance, and say that having faith matters more than uh, which faith you pursue. Which is so fascinating to me, just having faith in general the object of one's faith is irrelevant. It's just having faith in general that is sufficient.
well, I don't have time to go into the um, insecurity of that view of faith uh, and the unimportance of the object of one's faith or what you put your faith in. But it is rather telling where we stand as a culture here in the United States. Now, these surveys are, you know, when you consider the total population of uh, Christ followers in the country, it doesn't reflect the vast majority and how they would respond to a survey like this. But it is very telling where we stand as the church. And when you consider the fact that Scripture says, if you believe what Scriptures teach, and I do, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Um, will we present a watered-down version that doesn't, first of all, acknowledge that there is a hell, uh, that there is an enemy of our soul, uh, an opponent to be resisted, and what that means for the future as things uh, increasingly become more difficult? Well, it's an interesting question, and it always causes me to uh, think and rethink about where I stand. What do the scriptures teach on the fundamental issues of being a Christ follower? What do the scriptures teach about what's required in order to be reconciled to God and to be invited to spend eternity in his presence? And that essentially is what you're talking about, heaven, having an invitation into his presence. Um, do my good works uh, suffice? Well, the scriptures are very clear that they do not. And that Jesus Christ, having come and sacrificed himself for my sake, is the only way that I can experience that reconciliation and the only merit that I can cling to that will um, present me with that invitation. Well, there's much more that uh, that could be said, but we are out of time. Again, it's rather interesting. Um, what do the scriptures teach? Do I embrace and accept what the scriptures teach or have I fallen short or created my own version of Christianity that ultimately in the final day will be insufficient? I never knew you is something that we hear Jesus say in scripture. I do not want to hear those words from his mouth when I am finally in his presence. And certainly hearing him say, well done, is not dependent on my merit, (laughs) uh, my good works. Um, I'm grateful that I can trust and rest in him. Well, I want to thank James Blend for producing and uh, my engineer this afternoon, Dave King. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.